0: Coming up, deal or no deal, the most high-stakes game the government has ever played. The maintenance of the option of no deal is for both negotiating reasons and sensible security. I think it's unthinkable that there would be no deal. Plus, the Prime Minister faces yet another uprising, this time against universal credit. Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading the latest podcast. Before we begin in earnest, just a brief self-promotional note. We now have a whole new web address for you. Partygamespodcast.com. It's snappy, isn't it? And at the aforementioned partygamespodcast.com, you can subscribe, read the blog, even watch the odd video. We've also got exciting new Twitter and Facebook pages. They're both called Party Games Pod slightly shorter. Yes, we have finally embraced social media. We've come to the conclusion that it wasn't a passing fad after all. Now, how are things going in the search for that deep and special partnership with the European Union? Yes, pretty much how you might have imagined. Let's just roll back the last few days of spectacular progress. The last round of formal Brexit talks ended with the EU side warning of deadlock, and the Brexit secretary saying they'd basically run out of things to talk about because they won't start trade negotiations. Then Theresa May charged off to Brussels for a cosy dinner with Jean-Claude Juncker, but it definitely wasn't any kind of emergency trip. Downing Street insisted it had been in the diary for ages, it's just that every single journalist missed it. Then she headed back across the channel at the end of the week for a summit of EU leaders, of which she was, depending on who you talk to, either going to implore them to give a little ground to stop the talks imploding, or tell them that she never liked them anyway and saying, stuff there Europe where the sun doesn't shine. Because all of a sudden a no-deal Brexit is very much on the table. Or is it? Here's what David Davis said earlier in the week. We are seeking to get a deal. That is by far and away the best option. The maintenance of the option of no deal is for both negotiating reasons and sensible security. Anything, any government doing its job properly will do. And here's what Amber Rod, the Home Secretary, said a couple of hours later.
1: I think it's unthinkable that there would be no deal. Uh, it is so much in their interest as well as in ours, in their communities, in their families, and their tourist interest, to have something in place. We will make sure that there is something between them and us to maintain our security.
0: So that's nice and clear then. Let's bring in Robert Meakin at this stage. Robert, how badly is this going? Badly? Very badly? Catastrophically? I think it's going predictably. Badly, I'd have been
1: surprised if it was anything else. I and mean, this is an incredibly difficult set of negotiations. It's unprecedented. It's the biggest you know, political negotiation we as a country have been involved in in living memory. I mean, the EU were hardly going to welcome us across the channel and say, oh, OK, we accept that decision. A firm shake of the hand. Off you go. Yeah, as cheap as you like. It was never going to occur like that. It was always going to be very difficult for us. Um, the crux of the matter, as you say, is the so-called uh, divorce bill. I mean, that's the first massive stumbling block, but I can't say I'm particularly surprised. I don't think it's a time for panic at the moment. Sure, it's frustrating, but I I think there's some very, very difficult weeks ahead. But I I would still at the moment have to say that we just have to believe whether we like it or not in in our negotiation process and hope to goodness
0: that we can work our way through. So as, as we heard, the cabinet split down the middle, some saying they won't rule out no deal because they have to show they mean business. Others saying it's such a stupid idea that they should be ruling it out. And the backbenchers are no more united either. There's a sizable proportion of Tory backbenchers who genuinely wouldn't be happy unless Theresa May punched Juncker and Tusk in the face and then bricked up the Channel Tunnel on her way home. Well, this is the inevitable nonsense uh, that we have to put up with
1: as well. You have to remember there's a significant uh, section of the Conservative Party that have been waiting Uh, for this day of reckoning with the European Union for a long time. Now, while uh, Theresa May has the unenviable task, uh, along with David Davis, of of affronting these very, very difficult negotiations, you sort of have a few headbangers back in Westminster already saying, oh, let's tear the whole thing up. They're clearly not going to do a deal with us. Let's walk away now. I would say that uh, us actually walking away from negotiations, suggestion that we just abide by World Trade Organization rules instead, As unwelcome as that may be to people, there's no point pretending it isn't a possibility. It clearly
0: is at the moment. These next few weeks are absolutely pivotal to the whole process. The idea that ministers should embrace the hardest imaginable Brexit, a no-deal Brexit if necessary, does kind of ignore the political reality, which is that there isn't a Commons majority for it. The EU withdrawal bill was supposed to be back in Parliament next week. They daren't try it because there are hundreds of amendments, many of which could be voted through by both. Labour and Conservative MPs who are determined to change the government's approach. The cabinet's split, the Tory backbenchers are split, no one seems to have the first idea of what our negotiating strategy is supposed to be. I'm not going to bring back the clock. It is ticking away, but none of this really inspires confidence. No, it doesn't. And the uh, another, you know, very possible scenario is that, that at some
1: stage we, we could well have a Labour government. Now, they inevitably right now are saying, uh, refusing to say, rather, that they would necessarily abide by an agreement that the government strikes. If they don't think that agreement is fit for purpose in terms of, of our withdrawal from the European Union, they may reverse it. They may go back on it. That's how complicated things are presently. You know, we could could be in a situation where Theresa May spends all this time uh, seeing her own career sort of go up in flames while negotiating uh, our our withdrawal from the European Union. And then only for the Labour Party, a future Labour government, to say, actually, no,
0: we don't fancy that or agree with that. We're going to pull back on some of those things. Labour has said it will oppose a no deal Brexit. It won't allow it to happen. This is an entirely empty promise. There isn't a binding vote on Brexit. If the government said, look, that's it, no deal, MPs could vote against it. It wouldn't make the slightest difference because the fallback position, if Parliament doesn't back the government's recommended position, is we leave with no deal. So if Labour says we won't vote through no deal, the outcome of that is no deal. Yeah, and it, Labour's position. Presently, is you you could
1: say it's a it's a fairly cynical one uh, politically. They know the government is well and truly on the ropes over this. I mean, the, with the Conservative Party hopelessly divided on the issue, I think Corbyn, whose own performance, let's not forget, uh, during the referendum was far from convincing, is now obviously smelling blood. He thinks by standing on the sidelines and being critical and essentially unsupportive of the government's stance, there there's political mileage to have uh, there. And let's be frank, there is. Uh, but uh, Labour's own position has been pretty modelled uh, up until recently. They've now found their voice really because the, 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 the negotiations are in a very difficult stage. And as I say, that the, the Conservative Party is in a real over. It.
0: And then comes this outrage when the Prime Minister either couldn't or wouldn't answer the question of whether or not she would vote for Brexit if there was another referendum. Okay, is, can it really be true that the woman who's leading us through Brexit thinks it's a bad idea? Well, yes, actually, it can. We know she thinks it's a bad idea. She campaigned for Remain in the referendum. All right, she did it silently. But nevertheless... If she had suddenly changed her mind, surely that would make her far too weak-willed to be Prime Minister. The cabinet's chock full of people who think Brexit's a bad idea, but they also feel that they're bound by democratic values to deliver it. They asked people to decide. They decided they didn't follow the recommendation of many people in the cabinet. Now they have to go ahead and do it. Isn't it called making the best of a bad situation? And, as you say, looking back on Theresa May's own performance
1: during the uh, all-important referendum, maybe sympathy should be in short supply for her. Although it's obviously now a very unenviable position she finds herself in right in the middle of the Brexit negotiations. Uh, uh, During during the referendum, she played a pretty cynical political game. While she was, you know, very discreetly, to put it politely, a Remainer, she certainly uh, didn't go into battle alongside David Cameron. There was a sense that here was someone who was calculating for a little further down the line. If things blew up on the Prime Minister, she potentially was going to benefit from it. She was actually nicknamed Submarine May by Downing Street at the time. Such was her reluctance to come to the surface and stick up uh, for the Prime Minister at this time. So maybe it's a case to be careful what you wish for. She sniffed some political advantage by being rather ambiguous in her own position. Now she's the one, now she's the fall
0: guy, for want of a better phrase, slap bang in the middle of it. One of my favourite moments this week was the warning that Brexit could lead to higher food prices, and the responses the most enthusiastic supporters made, which were ingenious in trying to find a way around this, if not necessarily practical. There was the one commentator who said it's fine, because even if we don't have a deal with the European Union, we'll obviously sign a trade deal with Australia, which implies that we're going to survive on an endless supply of macadamia nuts. Meanwhile, Chris Grayling said that we could just grow our own vegetables. So It could be that our actual plan for life outside the European Union is that Britain should become a never-ending episode of The Good Life with a cast of 60 million people.
1: Yes, uh, Chris Grayling's contribution was, was among the more surreal this week, really. I mean, of course, we're going to get all this nonsense going backwards and forwards as the weeks and months go on. I'm afraid there's going to be no escape from some of these more surreal ideas, suggestions and theories about how Britain is going to flourish. But as you say, Grayling's suggestion, we're just going to become one giant cabbage patch
0: was among the more extraordinary offerings of recent days. Meanwhile, Philip Hammond has now replaced Boris Johnson as public enemy number one among the Tory MPs. The Leavers who are lobbying for his dismissal should maybe be a little bit careful what they wish for. Just imagine someone like Michael Gove sitting in the Treasury having to issue his warnings about the economic implications of Brexit. Unless, of course, they came from experts because he's not interested in anything that they have to say. Meanwhile, assuming Hammond is still Chancellor by the end of uh, November, he's apparently going to use the budget to make the Conservative Party sexy for the young folk. That of course means that it's the older folk who have to pay for any giveaways. Now punishing older voters was a key Tory strategy at the last general election and even though that was only in June they seem to have forgotten how badly that went for them. (laughs) Of course, all that sounds like a wizard wheeze if you like the sort of game playing that goes on at Westminster, and heaven knows we do. But actually, politics has an impact on the real lives of ordinary people and sometimes not a very nice one. This week, ministers have come under enormous pressure over universal credit, and not just from Labour, that Jeremy Corbyn did seize on the issue at Prime Minister's questions.
1: Will the Prime Minister now... Pause universal credit and fix the problems before pressing ahead
0: with the rollout. Why have we introduced universal credit?
1: It's a simpler system. It's a system that encourages to get into the workplace.
0: Tory backbenchers have been grumbling as well, with reportedly up to 25 willing to vote against their own party and demand measures to ease the impact of this new benefit. They didn't get a chance, though. The whips ordered them to abstain on a Labour motion on universal credit this week on pain of some sort of cruel and unusual punishment. Um, Robert, as with any major government programme at any time in history under any political party in power, there have been huge delays. It's just that when you have that happen with benefits, people can't buy food or pay their heating bills or pay their rent so they end up hungry or cold or homeless or possibly all three. The Universal Credit's idea was really... uh... Presented
1: as dealing with an overly complicated system, converting a number of separate benefit payments into one overall payment. The idea we we were told was this would make it more straightforward for people to theoretically get a get a foothold in life, to for those who are able to work to get back into the workplace. That was the idea. It was, as I say, simplifying a rather difficult system. The reality, of course, has been it's it's been a complete dog's breakfast. I mean, six week waiting periods for people people.
0: That is just completely unjustifiable, obviously. How are people meant to survive under such an arrangement? Now, this week, ministers dropped this ludicrous charge of up to 55 pence a minute to call the Universal Credit helpline. You do have to ask whoever thought it was a good idea to charge people on benefits who needed help for asking for it. But overall, the government's response is still, Universal Credit's working, the rollout's going to carry on. You know, Theresa May talked about wanting to help the Just About Managing. At the moment, under this policy, many of them are not managing at all and her responses still sound a little bit let them eat cake. The idea
1: I mean as, as, a, as a tax-paying working human being in Great Britain in 2017 the actual idea when it's presented to me makes a degree of sense. As I say, in reality, it's been a complete mess. And Theresa May doesn't look like a prime minister who's willing or flexible or imaginative enough to work out a way to adapt this system, to improve it. It cannot be justifiable that people are having to wait six weeks to feel the benefit of this new system. What the hell are they supposed to do in the meantime? And it certainly isn't acceptable that people are expected to pay 55 pence per minute uh, to actually get onto a so-called helpline to find out how the hell they cope with this flawed system. So a great deal of work is
0: needed. and. Theresa May just doesn't look like she gets it. Very hard to say you want a country that works for everyone when it's not working for people at the bottom. And very hard to say there's no money to fix these problems when one shake of the magic money tree produced a billion pound bung for the democratic unionists.
1: And that will always haunt this Conservative administration, that's where its credibility is seriously damaged because they made such big stock of there's not a magic money tree during the last general election when being so mocking of Labour's economic plans, only then to find, as you say, this magic billion quid to prop themselves up uh, in power by doing the deal with the, the DUP. How can you, on the one hand, preach economic responsibility and then on the other, when you just, because you're so desperate simply to remain in power, hatch this deal with the DUP for a billion pounds? Clearly, that is deserving of a great deal of derision and and, and this Conservative administration will never be allowed to forget that and, and rightly
0: so. Let's be really harsh about this and talk about the politics of it for a second. Honestly, not that many people who are claiming universal credit are likely to be Tory voters. But a lot of people who are Tory voters or would consider being Tory voters will feel squeamish seeing people struggle without benefits for six or seven weeks, be at risk of losing their home or being forced to go to food banks to feed their kids. And if you're a Tory, that plays into Labour's hands because it makes it so easy for Labour to say, oh, the Tories just don't care. And it's an argument it's almost impossible to rebuff when you've got people going through this awful, awful system that clearly isn't working properly.
1: And Labour's own track record with a benefits system is, is nothing uh, to be particularly proud of. As we say, it 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 is arguably in a bit of a mess. The Conservatives, I think, understandably and rightly have sought to address this to make it a more straightforward and simple system. Where they have failed is that the, the, the actual system they put in place to make it work just isn't workable. It doesn't work. And what was probably, I think, a, a very realistic and sensible way forward is now has now gone up in flames.
0: the other thing about politicians is there's too damn many of them. And this week saw another plan to do something about that. One idea is that new members of the House of Lords will be appointed for 15 years rather than for life. Meanwhile, new plans for parliamentary boundaries suggest there could be 50 fewer MPs by the time of the 2022 general election. We have, Robert, of course, been here before. There was a plan to slim down the Commons in 2013, which was rejected. And it's going to be rejected again. Here's why. Firstly, the DUP voted against it. Last time, and unless the government can find some sort of magical way of stopping them from losing any of their seats, they're not going to back it this time either. Secondly, under these plans released this week, 15 Conservative MPs would find themselves without a seat. Now, given the current mood of the Tory backbenchers, I don't see it's very likely they're going to sign their own death warrant.
1: No, and how quickly things change. Only a few months ago, people were saying, you know, the Labour Party are going to be heavily beaten at the general election, and to make matters worse for them, Um, there are then going to be boundary changes that are beneficial to the Conservative Party which was certainly the understanding making it even more difficult for this dilapidated Labour Party to perform well at the subsequent general election well things obviously have turned completely around now, Theresa May performs dismally at the election, they don't even manage to get a majority, hence they no longer have the numbers in Parliament to get these boundary changes through, as you say it could do damage now to some of their own MPs, and so this is a dead duck, It, it, it won't happen. So after all that research, no doubt at considerable cost, it is essentially a waste of
0: time. There are some interesting ideas, though. David Davis's seat would go under these plans. Boris Johnson's seat would become a great deal less safe under these plans. But the most intriguing one, Jeremy Corbyn's seat, Islington North, would disappear under these reform plans. It would be torn in two and split between, wait for it, Diane Abbott and Emily Thornbury picking over the remains. Yes,
1: while you know, this won't happen, you know, Theresa May can le- at least have it as a fantasy boundary changes, because so many things, so many parts of this she would clearly enjoy, you know, Corbyn's seat being absorbed, the idea that Emily Thornby and Diane Abbott lost their present constituencies, the fact her old foe Boris Johnson might get taken out by the Labour Party, all things that, let's be frank, Theresa May would probably privately welcome, but I-, I think she'll just have to put it into what could have been, because it doesn't look like a goer.
0: Finally, at the end of a stressful week, who doesn't need a little time to chill out. This week, there were mindfulness sessions in the House of Commons. In fact, it turns out almost 150 UK parliamentarians have had a course in meditation in the last few years. The idea, apparently, Robert, is they sit, they close their eyes, they focus on their breath, their bodies, their thoughts. It is not something I imagine Theresa May would find terribly relaxing at the moment.
1: Yes, I don't think uh, Theresa May presently has any time for any sort of mindfulness or mental clarity. I think that will have to wait until she leaves 10 Downing Street. Um, overall, I think yeah, you've got to say it's a very, very good idea that the day to day pressures of being a modern day MP. I think anything that uh, inspires uh, um, a, an inner calm, uh, a, a more philosophical approach uh, to improving the quality of thought and debate. I think I think that should be broadly welcome. So I'm all for it. I noticed that um, the Tory MP Tim Lawton revealed that he, he meditates in the bath for an hour every day. Um of course, it ended up being inevitably pointed out that uh, the resulting water bill had ended up being paid for by, uh, by taxpayers, of course, which was possibly a little awkward. And I also had to wonder, on, on the point of Tim Lawton, who
0: the hell has time to meditate in the bath for an hour? Certainly not the vast majority of us. If this calms things down at Westminster, maybe a bit of mindfulness is no bad thing. I'm not sure I can cope with another couple of years like the last one. Well, if you'll excuse me, I'm off to a darkened room to commune with my inner thoughts or something like that anyway, so we better leave it there for now. Don't forget that new website, partygamespodcast.com. Tell your friends, and while you're doing that, tell them about the new Twitter and Facebook pages, both called Party Games Pod. While you're busy subscribing to all of those, my thanks to Robert, thanks to you for listening, and for the moment, goodbye. <laughs>